Good morning. My name is Scott Warner, and I'm president of the Culinary Historians of Chicago. I'm honored to introduce our program today. It's like we're having a special offering, giving you three illustrious culinary experts for the price of one. Uh, but before I begin my actual introduction of our program, I want to tell you about something that happened near the site of our speaker's greatly acclaimed late restaurant, Grace. From what I understand, an unfortunate young woman was arrested late at night, practically in front of what had been Grace's front door. Um, the police report said that she'd been trying to sell sexual favors in exchange for a spaghetti dinner. The police said they had no choice but to charge her as a prostitute. <laughs> anyway, that, that's what I heard. But uh, how sad. And how sad it was when Grace Restaurant abruptly closed in 2017. The shutdown made national news with coverage in the New York Times. How could an eatery that had earned three Michelin stars, and that's only one of only 14 restaurants in America to earn such status, how could such a restaurant so quickly cease to exist? Conflict with the restaurant's chief funder apparently was the cause. And one of our country's top chefs, Curtis Duffy, along with the restaurant's gifted business partner, Michael Muser, were devastated and out of work. A bit of background. Curtis is an Ohio native uh, who had a Colorado childhood. And he overcame unspeakable family tragedy when he was 19 years old. From what I've read about this now gentle soul, he had grown up a troubled child. Uh, I mean, he was like a thug, beating up other kids, not doing too well in school, but he was able to find solace through cooking, showing exceptional talent and drive. He moved to Chicago when he was 24. Is that right, Curtis? 24? 20, wow. And quickly worked his way to the top of Chicago's food chain at a few little restaurants here like Charlie Trotter's, True, Alinea, and Avenue's restaurants. Uh, then came his dream, his restaurant, Grace. Uh, the Michelin acclaim and James Beard Award he garnered while heading the kitchen at Grace created a long wait to get reservations. And working side by side with Chef Duffy during his Grace period was Michael Muser, a 30-year veteran of the restaurant industry and an accomplished sommelier the two were said to painstakingly engineer every detail to showcase their skills and provide exceptionally delicious food along with the epitome of hospitality. But while the two may have had a fall from grace, so to speak, they're looking forward to redemption with their upcoming restaurant ever, set to open this, this coming spring. I know that Chicago's culinary world is greatly looking forward to that opening. Today, we're here to find out how a partnership works to create a culinary hit in Chicago, much like how the collaboration of Rodgers and Hammerstein worked on Broadway. And who better to probe the minds of a chef and his partner than Monica Ang, a reporter and producer for WBEZ Radio. And, and Monica and Luisa will have a, have a podcast, too. Before joining WBEZ, Monica was a food culture and watchdog investigative reporter at the Chicago Tribune, and I would read her columns, her articles religiously. She will happily pick our speaker's brains to the bone, 
and you folks will have your own chance to grill the partners during the Q&A part of our program after Monica's through. Uh, now, uh, oh, and, and Curtis, you, well, you can maybe talk about this. Well, never mind. You, there's an Escoffier scholarship named after you at, uh, what, what school is that? The, okay, at the Escoffier School, not, not too shabby. Yeah, great. And so now, uh, let the show begin. And would you all come, come on down, as they say. First of all, I'd like to thank everyone for coming out. I had no idea this would be all millennials here today. <laughs> We've just got mature people care about history here. <laughs> well, welcome, gentlemen. It's such a pleasure to see you. Because I don't know how much everybody already knows, I wonder if you guys could sort of give me a, a greatest hits, uh, your journey to where you are today in four minutes each. Four minutes. Go, Go ahead. Um, I'm Curtis Duffy. I am the chef of Ever Restaurant. Um, as Scott spoke, uh, Recently left a restaurant called Grace, downtown Chicago. Um, grew up in Colorado Springs for my first 13 years. Uh, moved to Ohio after that. Uh, finished junior high and high school. Went on to culinary school. After graduating culinary school, I moved to the great city of Chicago around 21, 22 years old. And have been here ever since. Um, a few restaurants that I worked at, I, I came here for, to work for Charlie Trotter before his passing. Uh, spent three and a half years there. Moved on to work at a restaurant called Trio, which was in Evanston. Did uh, some pastry work there as the pastry chef. Went on there to open Alinea with the chef who is currently still the owner of uh, Grand Ackett's. Leaving there, I wanted to really kind of have my own voice in the, in the culinary world. So I left to work at a restaurant called Avenues, which was inside the Peninsula Hotel downtown. That is where I met Michael Muser. Uh, instantly knew that at some point when I was ready to do my own restaurant, he was gonna be the guy that I wanted to partner with. Um, we became great friends instantly. Uh, I would say instantly. Met him and it was just like, this guy's legit. I love this guy. And we've been inseparable since. We left Avenues to build Grace. Ran that for about five years until um, the closure of that. So now we're on our first great journey to open ever. All right, thanks so much, Michael. And my name is Michael Muser. I was born in Palos Hills, Illinois. Ooh, South suburbs. My father, uh, I'm a baseball kid. My dad worked in baseball, so at the time he was working for the Chicago White Sox, and uh, he was quickly traded a year or so after that, so that ended my career in Illinois. Raised mostly in Orange County, California. Uh, I went to school, uh, college in Northern California, got bit by the wine bug eventually. I was an actor, which meant I waited tables a lot. And then, uh, then I just waited tables a lot. Uh, and then I just kept studying wine and studying wine, and that bumped me around a lot, spent a lot, a lot of time in Europe. And uh, when I came back to the States, I wanted to go to a place where I didn't have to own a car because I was from California where you have to have a car. I didn't want a car anymore, and so Chicago was my choice. Uh, I took a job as a wine director inside of Lettuce Entertaining for a short spell. Uh, probably one of the best jobs I will or would ever have was at Ombria. 
Uh, I worked there for three and a half years with the late Bob Bonsberg, who was an extraordinary uh, Chicago, Illinois sommelier and an iconic creature and who recently passed away. So hi, Bobby. And, uh, and then I, went, I took a job uh, as wine director of the Peninsula Hotel. And then Curtis came on board to be the chef at one of the restaurants inside the Peninsula Hotel. And then we met, headed off. And uh, about two years after we were working there, um, uh, the Michelin Guide announced that they would be printing books in Chicago about Chicago. And in our silly little fishbowl world, and we are fully aware of how fishbowlish and little it is, but in it, that guide is like a moment. And when it says we're going to come to Chicago and produce a book in Chicago, it's a big deal for guys like us, for people like us. And right out the gate, uh, in, a, in, a, in a dining room we didn't like with barely anything to work with, I mean, we didn't have a lot of coffee cups, and that's not a joke. Uh, you know, hotels are just funny that way, the way purchase orders get written and you gotta wait in line to get your things. Uh, we were not really set up for success, we weren't really happy, but we believed in Curtis's food. He received two out of three Michelin stars, the first book ever printed in the city. And that was kind of a minute for us. And right after that, I could see Curtis taking, taking grip into the ground like a sprinter at the gate. And uh, off we went to build him a kitchen that he could kind of take pace in. And uh, we ran Grace for five years. It received its third Michelin star the second year it was open and kept it for the entire time that it was there. Um, but then unfortunately, as the restaurant business would have it, uh, you know, you move on. And uh, we unfortunately had to. We didn't want to, but we had to. And for the past couple of years, we've been designing and we are now in construction and building, I think, to be totally, unbiasedly, brutally honest with you, the prettiest dining room in the United States of America, period. Okay, that is a lot to live up to, and we're going to get to that in a second. Now, I don't know what legal restrictions you may be under, but you know, a lot of ink has been spilled over what happened in 2007, 2017. Sure. Right? Can, can you set the record straight on what happened, or are you not allowed to? Where's my pre Where's Melissa? <laughs> Well, how, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go, Melissa. And you can just stand up and give me one of these when you want to cut me off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the um, we were not. We didn't own it, right? Uh, it wasn't our restaurant. We built it. We designed it. We created it. It was Curtis. It was our heart. It was our soul. It was ours. But we didn't own it. So when you don't own something and you want to dispute an issue or you're not happy with something. You know, I said on a previous one, I said, imagine yourself the cashier at Target and you want to walk up to the owner of Target and go, I'd really like to see the numbers. And the owner looks back at you and goes, but you're a cashier. And you go, yeah, but I'm the cashier and I'm the reason why everyone comes here. And the owner goes, yeah, but you're a cashier. And so you can only have that conversation for so long. And, uh, you know, we did everything we possibly could to save it. It's a bad analogy, it's kind of a sad analogy, but just, I mean, it's like putting down your favorite horse, your favorite dog. You gotta walk out to the barn and do it yourself. You kinda owe it to the animal at that point to do it. So, uh, we had to do that, and it hurt. Yeah, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. <laughs> so we're talking about target cashiers and dead horses, but I understand the analogy. Yeah. I'm um, trying to stay in the world of analogy, so <laughs> Melissa leaves me alone. The lawyer's still okay on it. Yeah. Okay, and, 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 and all the stable boys followed you. 
Yeah, that's I I say that like uh, back to silly analogies, right? But the city of Chicago, for it, they say it's the hub, right? The hub of America. It, I mean, from a culinary standpoint, if you look at Curtis's story, just what he had just said, he was a kid in Ohio working uh, uh, for uh, uh, golf resort kind of deals, and you know what I mean. And uh, he heard a ping out of the city of Chicago, and as a youth, was drawn to that that ping. His was Charlie Trotter's. For a lot of people, it was Alenia. For hopefully people for, uh, all around the Midwest, it'll be ever. They float, they congregate. And Curtis is definitely one of those voices and one of those talents. So a kitchen that Curtis is running is filled with almost like a monastic devotee. You know, they look at Curtis and they just literally are there for him. So it would be no surprise to you or to me, or I don't think anybody in the room, if you go to work one day and everybody goes, say, hey, Curtis isn't here anymore, and then all of the chefs pack up their knives and leave. That wasn't a surprise to us. It wasn't a surprise to the chefs. It was no surprise to anyone inside that restaurant, except for the person that owned it. And that's not my problem. <laughs> Knowing that, that you might not be able to give them a job for at least two years, did you feel any responsibility to kind of help them find a spot? We did everything we could. To be honest, I, you know this, and he'll back this up, and I'll stop talking in a second here. <laughs> Cooks don't have a hard time finding jobs right now. Yeah, they're in right? demand. If you're a cook in Curtis's kitchen, you got nine jobs in your pocket. It's just a matter of picking one, right? Would you agree with that? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Okay, so you guys have moved on. We're more than two years out. Maybe some of the, the, the bitterness, if there was any, has faded. You're looking at ever and you're naming it something that is like creating some giant expectations. Tell me what it's gonna be like. That's all you. No. <laughs> that is all you. He gets mad at me because I say too much. No, it's all you, you tell the best though. That's the great part. Um, I mean, not to fully skip over the, because it is easy to skip over, but the two years leading up to actually uh, uh, getting to the part where you name it, you have to raise the money for it and you have to fight, you have to make your way through that swampy land. Oh, we're gonna get to the money. Yeah, and uh, uh, so that's a process, right? Then it comes, the, the, but yes, during that process, you think naming a kid is hard. Name a restaurant, and name Curtis's restaurant after all that was and all that is going to be and all that you want it to be and so on and so forth. Well, it needed to be just one word, right? In our way, our DNA is clean, Precise, that's him, that's his cooking, that's his lifestyle, that's everything with Curtis is mise en place, in order, perfection, you know, that kind of stuff. He's very compartmentalized and detail-oriented. So yeah, the name wanted to be very, we would hoped that it would be very clean and very small and just kind of, and then we were looking for something that didn't necessarily have a particular meaning, um, but, but, that, but that found its way into your Lex every single day, right? And uh, somebody kept tossing around Evergreen, and then, and then it was Kevin Pang, who I was on the phone with one day, who's like, cut it, what about ever? And then I proposed to Curtis, and then we just kept going back and forth, and it took a long time for it to set in. But here's my pitch, I'll just give you my pitch, as if you were, we were interviewing or whatever. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, during the process, even though the name was set aside, he just kept saying, well, when, when this happens and this happens, it's got, it's, it has to be the best ever. And do you remember that one time we were at that one restaurant and this, that, and the other, and then that, that, that one little piece of China went to and that, 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 that was like one of the best things ever. 
and then the best china ever, and the best carpet ever, and the best acoustics ever, and ever, and ever. And it just was so, it became silly and obvious at a certain point to a couple of us, this is Curtis's ever. This is his ever. This is the box he's gonna put all his evers in. The best this ever, the best that ever. And conceptually it worked, and so we bought into it. All right, so tell me what this is gonna look like. On a plate? In a dining room, under your butt? The dining room and the experience of walking into it is dramatic. I think if we had any complaints about Grace, we were very young uh, in back then, and we were cautious. And now, not so cautious. Don't get me wrong, I think what we are, more than anything, is the guys that take it, but not too far. Like, we're super well aware of the light. That's his food, too. Respect for ingredient, technique only goes so far, no extra, no over the top. So it will be way more grandiose than the previous expression. We drew inspiration from uh, the bend and twist and architectural structures of those canyons in Moab. You know, those slot canyon views where they both kind of, two walls kind of convert. Stand mic. Yeah. Uh, that you'll, you'll have that experience when you walk in and you're greeted and we've packed some wow moments and just to the greet, we rethink everything. It's kind of funny when he said, there'll be a class or a conversation about butter service and butter plates. And maybe that sounds like someone's making that up. That is, that is where we live. In that we live in butter plates and demitasse spoons and how does one pick that up and how does that experience feel when they go from this stage to that stage when they walk in the door when they turn that corner when they walk down this hallway what will they feel what what will the what, what will the emotion be like how creepy can we make it how echoey how that kind of stuff right um, can I push you to be more concrete yeah, concrete's a good word, too, because it's, it's, very, it's, it's very concrete -y. It's very cave wall-oriented. You're thinking tones of, like, grays and blacks, and, like, we like to take raw, earthy materials and, and, and drive a truck of design into them. So these big, epic cave walls kind of sweep in on both ways and create that entryway area. But then you're greeted, and you're immediately taken left down the, that big bendy wall becomes a hallway. It gets so thin at the entrance of it, you almost go single file. And then you walk down, these walls are 15 and a half feet tall. I mean, it's like, and it's intimidating. They're tuck lit by these beautiful coves we're gonna build in on the bottom so the light just glows up on these walls. And then you're gonna get to a corner where you'll have to turn right, but the corner completely changes texture and feel and emotion. It goes from all that concrete and rock into this beautiful, soft, wooded moment where we're gonna do more tricks and play games and maybe feed you a bite in that particular area. And then you'll make a right-hand turn and you'll walk down another creepy, long, and these wall, these hallways are like 33 Sounds feet like long. Sounds like a haunted house with it, good food. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's beautiful though. These walls, the guy that makes these walls for us, these impacted earth walls, oh God, they're just like, they're amazing. And then when you walk into the dining room, I would just quickly describe it as like, as if the Starship Enterprise had a three Michelin-starred restaurant in it. That's kind of what it reminds me of. Like it's just epically modern and, un, and, and very clean and, and just super soigné, but it's classic. Like there's just so much of what we do that's old school, it's funny. I laugh at us sometimes. There's so many things we won't let go of because, you know. Curtis, can you give us DNA. a preview of what might be on the plate? Yeah, we went in a lot of discussion. Michael and I had 
months and months on end on discussion about what the food is going to look like, where it's going to go. And, you know, a lot of conversation came up through other people that we were speaking with about their thought process was the fact that now we are no longer with grace, that the food has to be different. But you got to understand, like, my food is my food, whether I'm cooking here at Bethany or if I'm at Grace or now at Ever. To me, it's just a box. It's a kitchen. Um, but it's my voice. It's not the restaurant's voice. So it was very important to me to, to really make sure that everybody that was, I was surrounded with understood that I don't, we don't need to change for change's sake. Right? The food is going to be who I am. It's an extension of who I am. It's 100% belief in the things that I enjoy eating. It's, it's the concentration of the vegetables, um, everything in season. Um, but it's also important for me to give you something familiar. And I love, what I love about my cuisine is giving you something familiar, but pushing you to, it, to the moment of um, something that's interesting also on the plate, whether it's a technique or a a texture or a flavor combination that you're usually not used to seeing, but you can still identify what is on the plate. Can you give me an example? Nope. Oh, come on. <laughs> you guys are doing everything you can to not tell me. I mean, how many people dined at Grace from here? Probably a few people, right? You bring it back any big hits? Any uh, well, greatest hits? Probably not. You know, um, we look at it as, as a book, our lifelong book, and this is a chapter that we're closing and we're moving on. So. If we brought back some of those things, people would start calling us out. Oh, it's just Grace 2.0, and we don't want that. Or bringing back we really bring, well-loved things that people miss and can't get anymore. We might have it on hand for surprise moments, but it's certainly not going to be on the menu. Moments like that. Okay, so if you can't give me like concrete, I'm going to put some lima beans and some gravy and a piece the of The thing corn. is, like, we haven't really thought about the cuisine. That's the problem. How could you, uh, two years? I mean, you we think, we think about, about I think about food all the time, yeah. all day long. I'm always constantly thinking and writing things down. But you got to understand, like, until we get, until we're in the season, we're in the moment, we're able to have those ingredients in our hands, they always change. Conceptualization on paper happens all the time. And we can certainly design a menu. Like, I look back at my old notes and I'm, I don't even know what half of it means. Because Same it's here. like, wh why would I think that? You know what I mean? But fast forward six months from now, where we'll be opening the restaurant, I could look back on a menu that I've written today, and I w it wouldn't make any sense. Okay. Broad outlines of ingredients that excite you. Vegetables. Everything in season. I mean, that's... You are determined I can't predict, to be vague. You're going to ask me today, I'm going to say coconut. Tomorrow, I'm going to say fennel. Okay. The next day, I'm well, going to say black olives. what's exciting you in this moment? Coconut. Coconut, what, uh, what form of coconut? Every form. Let's see what possible possibilities we can take a coconut and let's see how we can use it in so many different ways. Yeah. From it being young and seed, the water, the young fruit, the mature fruit, you know, the dried product, everything. How can we utilize everything of that coconut? And that's how I look at vegetables. It's like, how can we use something that starts from seed almost to decomposition, yeah. decomposure of that ingredient? Yeah. You know, yeah. how can we showcase every the life cycle of it, really. And that's, how we, that's at least how I think about food. You know, we don't, you know, you go to the store, you buy a piece of broccoli. Well, what happens when you get home? People will take the end of the broccoli and throw it away and only use the florets. But the stem of the broccoli that's is stock, a beautiful great. thing. What can you do with it? Yeah. There's a, a million things. That's what I love about vegetables. It's not a chunk of meat that just sits there and you have a, a few cooking techniques and you're done. 
And do you see that as an artistic exercise or also something that honors the farmer, the earth, Both. and not wasting? It pays the respect to that, yeah. And it's, it's you know, it's respecting that ingredient and giving it 100% of, not, you, not throwing everything away. Yeah. You know, you, you, it's your responsibility to treat it as if it was um, an animal that lived its life to, to serve the purpose of feeding people. The same thing with a vegetable. It's there to, to feed us, so we, it's our responsibility to make sure that you know, we're taking the care in it to do what we have to do. Absolutely. Well, this is the not, not the last time I'm going to try to push you on talking about food. <laughs> but you know, the, the big elephant in the room is you guys got screwed by your financier last time. What lessons did you take from that, and how are you guarding against it on this venture? I mean, part of the interesting part of that conversation or that, that question is uh, even though all lessons learned on the business side, which they were, dramatically so, uh, what I learned going through that process is that if I need X amount of dollars raised at the end of the day, <laughs> and it's a lot of X amount of dollars, um, you're going to, like, partnership comes. It, it, just, it just comes. It just comes you're gonna end up at some point, if the number's big enough, which for us it was, that you know, we, got, we, like, we would get courted by different folks who would come up and be like, hey, you know, we have a restaurant group, we'd like to talk to you. And I'd talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. Most of them, every time I introduced my lawyer, they'd go away. That was a big lesson, is just don't walk into a room without your lawyer. When things, go, when things get past a certain point, call Sean, get Sean in the room, you know what I mean? And if they get weird or shaky in the knees, walk away, walk away immediately. Drop, drop call. Um, before, I was the wine director of the Peninsula Hotel. Why would I even have a lawyer? Like, you know what I mean? That kid doesn't have a lawyer. This guy does. Now, we do, all the time. And so, you take on that partner, and when you take on that partner, and you take their money, they get a voice. They get a voice. And that's a hard pill to swallow. It took us almost 90 days of negotiating to work out a deal to get us to a place where we're like, okay, that much of the raise is now set. Now we have a partner. Let's grab hands with that partner and go meet the rest of the raise and then go get a lease and finish up the lease and sign the lease. But it's all of that happens simultaneously. It's a crazy dance because no one's gonna give you any money for a restaurant that you don't know where you're gonna put it. So you gotta figure out where you're gonna put it. Then you gotta get flirty with the landlord to the point where you can sign a letter of intent. That's scary because it's non-binding, but yeah, it is. And then there's start dates for leases, and then that sets the clock on how much longer you have to go get the rest of your raise. It's an unbelievably stressful experience. And it all just leads up to this one epic fall off the cliff moment where the money goes in, and then there it's there, and you run and sign the lease, and then it's just immediately off to design. And we locked ourselves in our, our architect's office for four and a half months designing it. It's so crazy doing one of these things, Monica, because you just put different hats on, you know? We had a design, I was a designer for like four months. Now I'm a construction guy. <laughs> now, I'm, now my life is general contractor, building manager, building engineer, you know, all that. But before that, it was like espressos and, and materials. Yeah. 
you know? Now it's totally different. And then when construction's over, we'll take our construction hats off and we'll put on our restaurateur hats. And now it's time to hire everyone and train everyone. And that's a totally different job than building and it. And is this to say that you've, you've wanted a certain level of control over every aspect of it and so you had to, you know, get involved in the design process and in the procuring the money and, you know, the making sure the legal stuff was okay. Obviously, yeah. I mean, there, yeah, there was no, like... Here, here it is. Ready? You know the secret to raising money? Pick up your phone and call rich people. <laughs> hey, I'm on public radio. I know it. That's what yeah. you did. Yeah. Yeah. Straight up. Yeah. Right? It's like, I need X amount of millions of dollars. Who in my phone do I know has expend, who has that much money that they would laugh at the idea of handing me 500 grand? And how many of those do I need? And here we go. You, 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 and, and, and you talk, and you talk, and you talk, and you talk, and you meet for cocktails when you don't want to, and you, you know, it sucks. And so do you feel reasonably secure that you are not going to have a repeat of what happened before? Yes. This one was methodically thought out and careful, and he owns every restaurant. I own every restaurant. So your names are on the ownership. Yeah, 100%. Okay. All the way to the nine. But, like I said, if I'm going to take your money, do you get a vote? Yeah, you get a vote. You know what I mean? Like, you, you, it's your money. So, you're in there with us, but previously, we were employees, and there was a period after that word. That's it. You're an employee. You can be fired, da-da-da-da-da. You have no rights to ask any questions or go into any details about anything. If you have a problem with the numbers, take a walk, you know? And, and part of that previous situation, not to bring it back up because I don't want to, but... People go, I don't understand how that happened. How did it not work out? How did that not work out? Well, you would ask that question because you're a normal person. You're a nice person. You're a reasonable person. So you assume that if you were the owner and Curtis was like, I'm not happy about some stuff, you assume that the response to him saying, I don't like some stuff was, oh my God, chef, chef, chef Duffy, what can I do for you? How can I make this work? You assume that because you're a normal, rational, reasonable, nice person. Yeah. Okay. Some people disagree. Have you seen our president? (laughs) Go that direction with the response. Never back down. Never surrender. Zero sum. I win, you lose. That's how this goes. Now let's start playing the game. That doesn't work. Well. Is, are these lessons that, you know, a reasonably young, pretty talented chef could take away, or are they really at the mercy of whoever wants to back them? I mean, obviously, you guys had enormous amounts of leverage, your reputations and, and everything, but probably, you know, a young chef who wants to start out and some guy's like, hey, I'd like to give you your own restaurant, they wouldn't be able to negotiate the kinds of terms you can we couldn't negotiate the first time. We didn't negotiate right, the first time. Right. There were Even no negotiations for the first time. That's why yeah. we're in. That's why we're in the position we were in. Yeah, yeah. we were those that kid that those, the chef. You just that's who we were. I mean, yeah, you had two Michelin stars, but we were both employees of a hotel, and right. we met a guy that was like, "I'll pay for it," and we're like, "Jamming, let's take it." And just down the street, you had Tai Dong with that whole nightmare scenario. And it'll happen again and again and again because I, do I look like I have an MBA in business? I don't, I don't know what I'm talking about, but even the little experiences that I've been through, I already know like 12 tricks. And any one of those tricks, I could super take advantage of someone who didn't know those tricks. Maybe well, let, let's speak of one of our cooks as he went, he had actually one of my first hires for Grace was there 
every single day, killed it for us, uh, left when we left. Um, he went back to his hometown, got involved with a gentleman who basically said the same thing that, he, that this other guy told Michael and I. This gentleman came to us and said, hey, this guy's presenting, I don't want to use names, but this guy's presenting this to me. Should I take it? And Michael and I's response was, you have a lawyer? You've seen what has happened with us. But the ignorance of somebody who's so young, like we were, and just wants, wants to do their own thing and have their voice thrown out there and giving, giving them basically a playground to do what they want to do, you just say yes because you're, you're young and hungry. You can find the most and talented chef in the so world. So yes, it's going to happen again. Yeah, we, he, he was so talented, was, is talented. He was talented then. He had a reputation then, but he didn't know partnerships, dividends, voting rights, uh, negotiation tactics. Uh, he didn't know how to utilize leverage in a room like that. I, I don't still, most of that stuff. Do you you name should, any cook, they're not going to know those. You guys should write a book or they should offer this at culinary school. I, well, Some sort of class. What, is he, what do you always say? When a, kid, when, a kid, when a culinary student asks Curtis, what should I do, what do you say? Go to business school. <laughs> go take business. If you don't go to business go to school, night classes. go do something that can help you get a better edge and hire a lawyer. You sound so much like um, young rock and roll stars who are like, I didn't know it was a business. I, you know, I had the talent, but I've got you know, nothing now because I didn't know what I was signing away. Yep. Um, okay, so we're gonna put this chapter behind <laughs> us and we're gonna talk about, <laughs> about, about the kitchen, about the dining room, about food and about inspiration. I mean, you say that, that your food is your voice and when I talk to chefs, especially ones that are so incredibly creative, I wonder where does that come from? Have you ever like stopped to think like, why do I have so many of these ideas that, that create these incredible things on the plate? Where does this come from? You know, I think it comes from being passionate and in love with something. That's where it really truly comes down to because whether I was a painter or some type of artist or musician, if I'm doing it just to do it, it's gonna come through that way. And to truly love something and truly love what you do, I think it's limitless of what you can do. And I think that's where my love of food was. I grew up, I, did, I would sit at the, the, the dinner table with my family and not eat anything. Like I, I didn't like food until about, I, was, I think it was about 13 or 14 is when I finally switched for me that I actually started enjoying things other than a few things. And I would say my mom was a terrible cook. She could have been, I don't know, I didn't try the food. I didn't eat it. <laughs> so I don't know if she was a terrible what cook or not. What was the switch? Like, I, don't know, I don't know what the switch was. I started working in a kitchen at 14, washing dishes. And there was something I loved about it. It was about, for me, it was instant gratification. It was doing something immediately and seeing the result and then being able to see that result make somebody else happy. And that is through food, and that's what we do is take something that we know what to do with and, and make experiences and, and memories for guests. And at a young age, for some reason, I caught that. I didn't, probably didn't know that's what it was, but in hindsight, yeah, I think that's what it was. Years ago when I interviewed uh, Ryan Poli, actually I was interviewing his sous chef for a story I was doing on sous chefs, and I said, what drives it? Because they would tell me, like, okay, we start at 6 a.m., we make the stock, we carry it up the stairs. And I'm like, why? Why do you put yourself through this? And they said, do you want to know why? Let me show you. There's this area upstairs. This was a butter. 
um, where we can peek over this little balcony and we can see people as they take their first bite. Yeah. And watching that look on their face, when they take that first bite and this like look of pleasure just, just, just washes over them is why we do this. Mm-hmm. I thought, these are people pleasers. These are people who've wanted to please their parents or something. Um, Those moments exist times a thousand across the entire spectrum of everything that happens in the kitchen and everything that happens in the dining room. They're just those little teeny tiny kicks of gratification and adrenaline or whatever you think that it is, you know, whatever it is that just, that just kind of make it for you. I had a conversation yesterday about the definition. Somebody asked me, uh, what's, what, what does soignee mean in a restaurant, right? Like what is soignee when chefs, cooks, front of the house people like to use soignee all the time. And I said, well, this is it. This is uh, a captain is standing at a table in a dining room, and the captain looks down and sees a tiny drop of water on your table. And so the captain elegantly reaches into their pocket and pulls out a quarter-folded serviette and dabs the water. But then the captain, doing all of this, takes for granted and knows that because we're so good at what we do, there's a back waiter sitting in a shadow watching this whole incident. When the captain dabs that little bed of water, they take their hand and place it directly behind their back with the serviette in the palm of their hand. And the back waiter flies by like Tom Cruise and Top Gun buzzing the tower and just elegantly swipes that serviette out of the backhand of the captain. No one said nothing to nobody. Everybody just hit mark. And then the captain's hand came back out without a serviette. Captain never missed a beat, never stopped talking to the client, never drew attention to anything. And everybody did everybody's job because it was chins up, eyes out, and total focus. That's my peeking over the butter moment. And those happen every four or five minutes in our dining room, right? Just these awesome little slide of hands because everyone's connected because we're all here to kill it tonight. You know, that's kind of why I think little moments like that make it, you know? It's why you do it. It's fun. So creating that perfect experience for people where it's just everything goes well to make them feel comfortable and wonderful and have... But ultimately, too, being a part of something. It's not just, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I... Recently heard Leah Omolinsky uh, did a reading at the Between Two Ferns, or whatever they call it. Uh, <laughs> the other one. What was it? Between Bites. Yeah. Okay. And she was at Nico Osteria, and, she, and then she wasn't, because that went through a moment. And when I saw Nika go through that moment, that restaurant, I'm like, well, it's a restaurant inside a hotel. Maybe I'm sure it's corporate-oriented, yada, yada, yada. It was traumatic for her. She was just an employee. She wasn't an owner. She didn't have stock. But her reading that day was about her experience of her loss of Nico and then the, the, the journey there to get to her new spot. And it just dawned on me, we always, as restaurant people, we identify with our restaurant no matter what it is. We are that restaurant. She was Nico. Nico was her. It was like a divorce to lose it. When we closed Avenues, that was the last night Avenues, and we ran, and we got in so much trouble. I got in a lot of trouble at the Peninsula Hotel because we ran it like we owned it. So we pissed a lot of people off in the process. And when it closed, we had a big party. It was sad, and we cried, and moving on to Grace was like a big deal. And, you know, we, we as restaurant people in general marry our concepts. We, we bond with them and become them at any level. And Leah that day taught me that. Did you yeah, because um, vibing off of what Michael's saying about owning that restaurant, having that mentality, it's something that we teach our young chefs is every chef in the kitchen has a station that they work. And because the restaurant's open five nights a week, that's their station. They own that station. And I always tell them, 
pretend in your head that this is your restaurant. This little area with your three dishes that you compose every single night, this is your restaurant. And what you put out is a reflection of who you are. We say this all the time, it is a reflection of who you are. If you're folding a napkin and the napkin is off, that's on you, right? You're okay by letting that go by. We're not, we have to set those standards every day. And we hope, and with our philosophy is, that our staff that we hire and train are gonna come in every day and exceed those expectations. That's our goal, is for them to exceed our expectations. That's, that's what we want them to do every day. So we make sure that they, you own this. This is yours. So there's the famous brigade system where, you know, the chef is the leader and, and what he or she says goes. And I always ask chefs, do you have to have that kind of order and toughness, and some people would say even going to abuse in the kitchen to make this group of people, sometimes degenerates, all behave? Or can no. you be kind of cooler about it? Absolutely. Um, we do run that brigade system, but very lofty in the sense of we have a chef, myself, we have the chef de cuisine, who's my right-hand guy, and then we give him two right-hand guys, whether it's the pastry chef and the sous chef. And we leave it to them to run, run the kitchen, basically. If it gets to me at that point, something's wrong with the system, right? Um, and it falls back on who we're hiring. That's what it really starts with. Um, we're, hire, we're trying to hire self-motivated people. It's not my job to motivate you to do your best every day. That's gotta be within yourself. That's gotta be your, your drive within yourself every day. It's not my responsibility to make sure you're pushing every single day. I lead by example, I'm gonna push myself every day regardless. Catch up with me, keep up with me. You know what I mean? It's setting that mentality. That's great because- I think a lot lives in the interview process too. Like that's so, that's so much, it's everything, right? It's just so much where you, where that's the only opportunity I'm gonna have or maybe we'll have two or three different versions of these interviews where I get to set these standards. I get to tell you a thousand times over that I am not a liar and this is how this place works. And you're here to not lie to yourself and say to yourself, I want it. Because you probably don't, but you, you know what I mean? And then if I get a sense of that lie being told to themselves during that process, because we have wacky policies. Can't even really call them policies legally. We got a school night policy. There's no going out after service Tuesday through Friday. You have no business going to a bar at one in the morning. What is wrong with you? It's one in the morning. Go to bed. That you is, have work the next day. That's and so interesting. Some of them will look at me like, I, 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 and, I, and, I, and then I, I will repeat, I'm not a liar. I will find out and know. And can I do anything to you? Can I write? No, I'm not. What is this? You know, China? I'm not going to do that. But I will, get, I will get salty about it. I can say, you know what I mean? Heard you were out for drinks last night. How was that? What time did you get home? <laughs> I'm fascinated by that because every person in the in, in the field I know said, "Yeah, we got to wind down. We got to totally. go out afterwards." Um, have you ever heard of another restaurant that that basically had this school night policy? No, no. At, at at the other one, we had an alley behind us, and when we first got to the West Loop, it wasn't like you know, 
the West Loop. Yeah. So <laughs> you know that. But you're you're a pioneer of that. But uh, but we were there. You know, say when we first got there, it was like seven eight years ago. So in the world of the West Loop, that was like 50 years ago because there's just things going on yeah. there every day. But anyway, the alley was a deserted place, and so we just took a huge uh, oil barrel and cut it in half. And on Saturday nights, after service, so we had the school night policy, and you could see them on Saturday night, man. They were like, we're going to paint this down pink. And I would light a bonfire, and we'd go get like 25, 30 packs of Pabst Blue Ribbon, right? So it cost the restaurant a couple hundred bucks to just rain beer on these kids in, in the alley after service. They never went to a bar. They got to a place very quickly where they would beg us for beers in the alley after service. They're not out at a bar. They're not getting in trouble. They're not in front of other people, other cooks. They're not. They're, they're, they're our kids. They're our house. This is our house. This kind of, you know. These policies, that interview process, that culture, that's what, it's, that's what it is, you know. Restaurants are the people that live inside of them. You go to a restaurant, have a really bad experience, there's a reason. There's a human reason for that in there, you know? Well, yeah, getting to that point, uh, there is a lot of um, substance abuse in the industry. There is uh, a lot of untreated uh, mental health issues in the industry. A lot of that ends up becoming substance abuse. And I think there's not a lot of self-care. I, I believe Philip Foss had recently spoken about it. What, what do you do personally, and what would you like to see your employees do personally to maintain that you know super hard work work ethic and super hard standards, but also take care of themselves. I mean, for me, it's just leading by example. You know, I'm I like to I like to work out. I like to take care of myself. I like to eat healthy. I've seen the Instagram posts. And it's you know it's it's a lifestyle. It's not an on-off switch, right? Now we say that a lot about um, being a chef. It's not okay. Now you flip the light switch on when you get to work. You should be thinking about that the moment you wake up, generally. Um, it's just like holding yourself accountable for things and that in itself is taking care of your, your body, your mind, and making sure that you're able to put forth 100% to you at first, not to the, my restaurant. You know, you have to take care of yourself first. So, I don't know, I lead by example. I try to encourage the young to get out, be physical, take care of yourself, but you know, it's like you can lead a horse to the water, they say. You can't make them do it. Yeah. So. I, they get me. That's what I tell them. This is like a relationship. You're gonna, you're, it's 50-50. You're dating me now. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in your life. Ta-da. You know, like, <laughs> what's your girlfriend's name? How's rent? What neighborhood do you live in? How did you get to work today? Stuff like that. That's that, like, you, that people talk. And I, and I agree. We should be talking about you know, the mental health aspect and the substance abuse and all that stuff. My answer to all of that is go to work, get involved, and talk to your kids. Talk to them every single day. I, I, you know, I walk through the kitchen and hear Brian the cook talking to the cook next to him that his wife got a job in Montana last week. Wow, that's a big deal. Like, is he moving? Is he leaving? Is he changing? Is he, you know, these guys and gals... They have, they have tough decisions that they have to make all the time, right? They don't make any money doing what they do with us. They have, we, we can't. We can't. The house cannot afford. The economics do not exist to pay the cooks awesome style. You just can't. Why? Because there's too many of them. There's like 13 of them in the kitchen burning minimum wage with at least 5 to 10 hours overtime every week. That adds up fast. 
plus a chef de cuisine and a sous chef and a pastry person, three sommeliers, five captains, uh, six back waiters, four back, you know, four food runners, all these people. And the house just gets exhausted after a while. So they don't make a lot of money and they get constantly pitted in these positions where they have to make these passion over, you know, necessity calls. You know, do I want to go to that hotel and make 80 grand next year and actually live like a human being? Or do I want to stay in passion town over here and crush it and make food that I know I love and I, for, the, for, the, for the cause of getting to his level one day? That's a roll of the dice, you know? So are you seeing this as sort of a teaching hospital type situation where people go there to learn um, and they're there for the experience, but they may move on and, and get their own restaurant one day? Yeah, I mean, everybody that we hire knows. We know that their ultimate goal is to go on and do their own thing. And we want them to. If they say to me, like, in, what's your goal in five years? If they say that they're still working for me, that's a problem. You know, I want more loftier goals from you to go and do your own thing or go work as, maybe not your own restaurant, but to be an executive somewhere. But if you say to me, like, you want to be here in five years, Interesting. I would say to you, I'm probably not going to hire you, <laughs> first of all, because, you know, but most of them do. Most of them will come, and, and we try to get a two-year commitment out of them. A year and a half is ideal. Mm -hmm. um, if we can get two years out of one, of one of the kids to stay there and push as hard as they can every single day, then that's a win for us because we know that they're going to move on to, to do what they want to do. And in our industry, that's, that's a window, that's a sweet window, is a year and a half. One of the all-time classic signals of a healthy restaurant is low turnover. It's so easy, right? But it's just like, you can see it from a mile away. What's your turnover like? What's your retention? Do people stay here and work here? Or, you know, what's the average run of your, 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 most of your employees? If they're staying there, it can't be that bad, right? You're doing something right. If most of your employees like their job, not, you know, and there's, because like, especially now, if they don't like working for you, there's 95 restaurants ready to hire them at the drop of a hat. So you mentioned relationships. Um, and congratulations, Chef. You recently got married. You're lovely. Yes, my beautiful wife, Jennifer. And uh, I, I ask this of chefs a lot. Can you be a great chef and a great dad and partner? Absolutely. I think one of the greatest things... I usually say no. Well, you, no, you can. It's, it, you know, Ivan, I'm still learning it. It's, it's still trying to find that balance. Um, but I think if you can be a great father, you can be great at anything. That's, that's where it starts, right? Um, so it's a balance. It really is a balance. Because to get to the level that we want to play at, it takes 100% dedication to it. And what else happens? Something else has to sacrifice from, for that. So if you've only got 100%, how does the pie break down? Less sleep, you know. It's getting up earlier. It's spending. It's fi it's finding creative ways to spend time with the people that you love, you know. Whether it's coming, whether it's having them at the restaurant for a family meal, or to be able to sit down in the office and just spend an hour with them, whatever it might be, you have to find those creative ways to do that. And you know, I didn't know how to do that years ago. But you know, as time goes on, we're constantly learning how to make those um, right decisions. And you're going to be open five days a week, is it? Correct. So two days a week, folks can attend to the rest of their lives? Absolutely. Yeah, there is a benefit to the whole thing that we do. I mean, the work ethic, and, the, and the, it's crazy, and the hours are long, and go there. Yeah, for sure. 
Uh, but it is, yeah, it's, it's structured, right? Like I can tell you working at the Peninsula Hotel, that's, a, that's an 18 hour day all the time. Thanksgiving day, brunch, you're working. Christmas Eve, Christmas day, New Year's Eve, you name the holiday, you're not just working. You're working. That's a, those are 15, 18 hour setup days, right? We don't ever deal with that at, our, at, our, at, a, at a restaurant like ever. It's Tuesday through Saturday, dinners only. No lunch, no brunch, no fuss. Like, you know what I mean? That's why we can set these crazy standards and that's why we can ask all of this insanity from the people that jump in this crazy box because you get there at this time and you will leave at this time. And I will not call you on Sunday and Monday. Provided you don't get arrested or something like that, you know? <laughs> um, we're going to need to go to audience questions in just a second. But um, just last question. You, you were one of the only two restaurants in Chicago with three Michelin stars. Uh, if I've read correctly, you may become the most expensive restaurant in the city. Do you feel a co competition with your old restaurant, Alinea, in, in that way? And... Do you think that, um, that there's still room for that super high-end um, when some chefs are going you know, and doing more moderately priced places? What mostly depresses me about the question is that you read that Eater article, or at least saw the title of it. <laughs> I read so it. When, the, when the great and illustrious Phil Vitell interviewed us, he asked us about price point. And I said, I think we'll be somewhere in the middle amongst our competitive set. So call it somewhere between, I know, buckle up, but it's our little fishbowl, $300 to $500 for the experience. It, uh, uh, you know, our technique is very simple. You get on the phone, now the computer mostly, and you shop everybody. You see what 11 Madison Park and Per Se and, and, and the Laundry and Bennu and Manresa and all the other guys and gals are charging. And you go, okay, so that's where they're at. Let's put ourselves somewhere in the middle-ish below them, not above them. Let's not be crazy. And that is in that three to $500 mark. And then, and then Eater got a hold of that and said, the most expensive restaurant in all black letters at the top of the article, because I know no one else reads beneath it. Would you prefer they were like pink letters? It, we're not, like, I can, I don't know. I can't say. But we, I, there's no way we're gonna be as expensive as Alinea. I don't think so. I don't think so. I was just recently shopping and looking around, and that's a very, that's more than what I said in that article, what's happening over there right now. Do you feel at all in competition with Alinea? No, what he does is, uh, sorry, but I'll go, yeah. He, his, what he does is nothing like that. If Curtis, if I came at Curtis and goes, check it out, we're gonna do an edible helium air balloon. <laughs> he would just go, bam. <laughs> he would, you know what I mean? There, nothing could be more anti-Curtis, right? You, you and your molecular goobly gawk muser, get out of here. Uh, he has such an intense respect for ingredient. I'll give you another one. I can't remember the restaurant, but there was this crazy famous restaurant in France and there was a stage in the kitchen who was a cook in that restaurant and he had asked his chef, famous chef, I can't remember, shame on me, and he goes, where should I go? I'm gonna go to America and I'm gonna stage. And he goes, you need to go to Chicago and you need to work for Curtis Duffy. And the cook goes, why? And he goes, because he cooks. He's cooking food. He's cooking food. He's about technique and he's cooking. It's not agar agar out the wall and you know what I mean and glass tubes spinning in the corners of the kitchen none of that exists in his head it is let me find the most ridiculous ingredient possible 
And, and part of the thing why the menu isn't in development yet is because the ingredient really does come from the craziest of places that you think it comes. There really is a guy in Washington. His name really is Running Squirrel, and he really does forage overnight, and then UPS FedEx that stuff to the restaurant in teeny tiny little boxes. And what he gets that day is what you get the next day. So how are you going to do a menu using his stuff? He don't know what he's doing tomorrow right now, right? So... The respect for all of that hunting and gathering, once it gets back into the restaurant, he just draws this beautiful line in the sand where Curtis goes, I'm an artist, yes, and I owe it to the plate to do these things, yes, but that's squab, and you're going to know it's squab when it comes to the table. Those are beets, and you'll know what you're eating when you're eating it. I'm not going to take you past this level where you're just solely confused trying to digest a Jackson Pollock painting. Okay. The, the difference between that and molecular, molecular gastronomy aside, it's, it's still a tasting menu. It's still a chef's tasting menu. And I know I said that was the last question, but what, what do you like about that style of presentation for a chef? Well, it gives the guests an opportunity to taste multitudes of different ingredients. You know, if you went to a restaurant where you just ordered, say, an appetizer, entree, dessert, you get three plates, call it nine different ingredients on the entire menu. For us, we're able to give you so many small bites that can add up to a large sum, but you, over the time of your course, your time of your menu, you've experienced two, three hundred different ingredients, which... The much broader palate for yeah, the show. It's, I think it's a more interesting way to eat because we've all been in that place where we sit down and we have a large bowl of something and about three bites later, we're, we're over it. We don't want to eat anymore but you're forced to eat it because now you've already paid for it, you're gonna waste the fish or the chicken, you know what I mean? So if you have one or two, th two bites, then you're left with wanting more, that's kind of a nice feeling. Then you're on to the next course. All right, so um, let's start with the gentleman in the stripes. Um, you talk about perfection in your restaurant. There were four of us at your restaurant and uh, we ordered an extraordinarily expensive bottle of champagne first and there were two vegetarians and at one point during the dinner, the runner mixed up a vegetarian and a meat dish. Mm. Put it at the wrong places. Yeah. And two seconds later, the waiter saw it and moved it. And sure. it was like instantaneous. Yeah. Anyway, so the... The, the better part of that, before you keep going, is that after all this happened, I can tell you what happened without even having to remember the incident. The captain, after fixing that mistake, ruined that food runner for about 20 minutes in the kitchen. <laughs> keep going, keep Poor going. food runner. But anyway, at the end of the meal, uh, the bill came. Waiter over and said, You forgot the champagne. Uh, you didn't put it on the bill. He looked at it and says, No, we didn't. He said, Yeah, you did. You got to put the champagne on the bill. He said, Do you remember way back there an hour and a half ago when that runner mixed up something? And we had to think about it, folks. Couldn't even remember it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's why. Yeah. Okay, so for the, for the podcast, the gentleman mentioned that, that uh, two dishes had been switched accidentally for the moment and the champagne was no longer on the bill. We just want to make sure it's on mic. Question is, will you have more women in your kitchen, and is there a sexual harassment policy? Well, at Grace, we had multitude of women. We had management women. Um, my pastry chef was a female. Um, our general manager will be a female, or is a female. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's um, certainly, we don't discriminate gender in that sense. Uh, we, we're gonna hire who fits the right attitude, like I said, the passion behind it. Yeah, absolutely. That's not a, we have no problem hiring women at all. It, it, We have an industry issue in general in that there's not a lot of talent 
out there, or there's not a lot of human beings wanting these jobs right now. I think if you put, especially the, the restaurateurs that have like 20, 30 restaurants, you know, we have, we'll have one. But if you had Kevin and Rob up here that have all these restaurants all over the place, it is a struggle to get humans that are excited and ready to do that job. And then to be able to be in a place where you're like, we need to make sure that the place is balanced on top of that is, uh, is challenging at times. Uh, but for us, like all of, the, all of the big chiefdoms in our little network, they're all, they're all women. Uh, Amy Cordell is, I've, I've said on multiple occasions, is my heart and right hand. She is, she's been with Curtis and I for 12 years, and we are in many ways kind of building this restaurant for her. Like this is, this is by far her turn, you know? So we're excited to, to take that opportunity. But I can tell you from a, an interviewer and a, someone who brings in the people and hires everybody, especially the front of the house, man alive, do I give it every effort to ha just have a rainbow of humans in the room. I love that. It's like my favorite accomplishment, but it is a challenge because you, you know, post and you say everybody come in for interviews and it's just, it's tough when you know you don't you don't get that rainbow you want to choose from okay in the back oh thank right. you so much so the question is um where the statement is you're sexual and you're spiritual and the young lady would like to eat your food <laughs> uh, could you talk a little bit about your purveying methods do you deal like directly with farmers do you just buy through purveyors or combinations how do you get your food well, we pride ourselves in having hundreds of farmers and foragers, fishmongers, uh, people that are passionate about either growing or hunting or raising product that we use. And a lot of the time we'll bring those farmers into the restaurant and have them sit down and have dinner because it's exciting to see where they're just as passionate about ingredients, what they're growing as we are using it. So. For them to see the end result is very special for us because we know that when we ask, for instance, we had a farmer in Michigan that we want them to set aside an entire acre of land for one specific ingredient. And to ask a farmer of that is, you can't do that, right? Unless you have a long relationship with them, 20 plus years. Gentlemen in um, here on Ohio, I've been buying from him since 93. Great farmer. Um, but it's relationship building, you know, it's making sure that we cultivate that relationship. And, you know, it's, so yeah, we have hundreds of farmers and people that we buy from. And it could be the smallest amount of things. You know, it could be 10 pounds a week of hazelnuts. That's it, you know. But it's at least supporting them and not it's easy for us to just go to a larger product company and say, okay, I need 10 pounds of hazelnuts. But because I have a relationship with this farmer in Minnesota, that's where we're getting the hazelnuts this year. You know, it's important for us. I know. Table and like in your restaurant, mine they had the obligation to read the table, fix 
fix what was wrong, and then tell me so on the way out I can say, I'm so glad the server fixed that for you, so I look like I had it together. <laughs> but I go into restaurants now, and the thing I hear is, are you still working yeah. on that? And I, want, <laughs> I take it as a teaching moment. Yeah, totally. And I say, that's an insult to the chef, and so what do you really want to know? May I take your plate? That's the question. And then I have all of these moments where I stop wanting to go out to eat because yeah. I find it so um, debilitating to be sitting there and wanting to enjoy the food and having all of this experience that is so not what we planned. So I worry for the restaurant industry. It's tough because you end up in the training process, you bring in these 35, 45 uh, front of house people and you find, yes, like, uh, you know, uh, like, like at pre-shift, will be doing like vocal exercises. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers because when they come to the table, they're saying things like oxalis, finger lime, you know, these weird things that people don't eat. Let's not pretend like they know what's on that plate. <laughs> the staff didn't know before I trained you, so why would they know when they walk in the door? So the and culinary so historians are doing this for a podcast, so I just want to like summarize what Ina said oh, and yeah. what you're responding to. So Ina was saying she worries for the state of the um, industry because there are some pretty bad servers out there these days, and, and then so you're demonstrating that yours are, are very dedicated. This stuff is, the onus is on the house to, to get them there, chef. Yeah, for sure. And to, you know, and to get, and yeah, and, and to get them to the place where they can read that table and but as you know the busier that restaurant gets the harder it gets to have consistency over 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 those over those you know you know they bring such bad habits with them is what you said that if they they always said i was much too picky which i took as a compliment <laughs> and then they would go across the street and get another job because yeah. nobody checked yeah. Yes. yeah my question is front of house interviewing training wherever, would you kind of prefer a green person that you can train in your methods, your ways, or, you know, someone who's been 35 years a captain at wherever? So this goes to this goes back can to I kind of your point. So, oh yeah, I'm sorry. So Monica. the question is, do you prefer people who are new that you can shape and form, or sort of old veterans yeah. when it comes to front of the house? We take them green, every day, all day. I'm looking for competent agents. When, if someone walks in the door possessing the ability, exactly what Chef Ina just said, if you already know how to read another human being, if you already walk in the door with the sensitivities to go, they're upset, look, they're upset. Let's not all pretend we're shocked that like seven out of 10 people don't have those spider senses. And I don't know where that happens, and I don't know why. I'm just as frustrated as everyone else who has them. But lots of people simply don't. Yeah. So how do you figure out if someone has spidey sense in the interview process? Yeah. We do lots of pass-ons. So like, I'll talk to somebody for a while, then Amy will talk to somebody for a while, then we'll eventually dump them on Curtis for a while, and he'll sit there and talk to them. And if everybody's vibing in the same tone, then we'll pull them in. And in the front of the house, in our world, it's almost always the same, no matter which version of us you go to, you get the food runner line. That's where you go. Everybody that gets hired, no one gets hired and goes, congratulations, you're a captain tomorrow. It doesn't, it's just not how the respect channel works. You put your butt on that food runner line and you earn your respect like everyone else had to before you. And that food runner line is not a fun place to be. And it's very intense, as this gentleman just said, because you, the expediter calls you out and says, the two of you, 
two beef, 14, one is no peanut, you know what I mean? Like he, and, he, and then he calls the specs on the plates, and you know, P2, no peanut, P3, this, that, the other, boom, 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 boom. And the two of you grab two plates a piece, you're running out to that four top, and God forbid you put that no peanut in front of a peanut. You might kill somebody. These are not jokes. These are real allergies on this ticket. And we're the house that knows. So don't screw it up. If you can survive on that food runner line, you'll learn table numbers, position points, hustles, you'll become a member of the team. Yes chef, no chef, right away chef. There's not a problem that can't be solved in the restaurant with those three responses. Yes chef, no chef, right away chef. Everything else is that, 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 that. Just yes, no, right away. That, and, and then if they survive that, then they can move on and they climb up the ladder relatively quick, usually. Yes, sir. So the question is, there's a film called Four Grace. Uh, my pal Kevin Peng made it. Where can people see it? Uh, you can currently see it uh, streaming on Netflix, iTunes, uh, Amazon. Where else? I think it's on the internet. It, yeah. on the inter- Netflix is usually the easiest way to go. Yeah. So. It's called Four Grace. It's a documentary about uh, your whole um, journey and opening Grace. When, when we were leaving the Peninsula Hotel, we were approached by a friend of ours named Kevin Pang. He was a reporter, a food reporter at the Chicago Tribune, the great Chicago Tribune. And, uh, and he asked if he could follow us around to make like a 15-minute film. And then it was like, maybe we'll do a 35-minute film. Uh, he's like, maybe it'll end up on WBEZ, maybe it won't, who knows. And it ended up becoming a feature-length documentary. And then, as uh, documentarians would, he then entered it into film festivals. It found its way into South by Southwest, which before that I didn't even know what that was. Then it won awards at South by Southwest, and then it was purchased by Netflix, which is a really, really, really big deal because the number of documentaries that make it to Netflix as a streamable platform are like one out of a million. So uh, it's not ours. Kevin made it. Um, Curtis lent his life in every, every aspect to it. And uh, I think, yeah, anyone, I, I have to say, anyone who watches it, it, it's not a fun thing to look at someone and go, you should see my documentary. <laughs> what a silly thing to say to another human. But uh, you really should watch it because if you like food and you like the industry, it is the most intimate look at a human who is a chef. And it's not about food most, most of the time. It's unbelievably moving. And I say again and again to bravo to Kevin for making it the way he did and bravo to Curtis for just having the courage to step because he really went there and gave it all. It was uh, remarkable. Question? Um, there are things that are called writer's block. As a chef, have you ever had a chef block? <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs> have you ever had a creativity block as a chef? Absolutely. It happens all the time. You know, it's, it's uh, well, you rely on your team. You rely on um, a handful of people that you surround yourself, your right-hand guy, your chef de cuisine, your sous chefs. And then you, you just try to start brainstorming as much as possible. You know, just getting through it. The, the worst feeling at least for me, is being forced to create something. Because it's not natural, I don't feel. If I'm forced to sit down and do it, then I'm under the pressure of having to do it. Whereas, you know, creative process for me is um, just having the ingredients and just working with it. You know, you are on a time limit. And, you know, when we open Ever, we'll have probably two 
we'll have spring and summer menus set conceptually down on paper. So, because I know from past experience, the restaurant opens and we're in the middle of this menu and then all of a sudden we have to change it because it's summertime or fall is here or winter's here and we have to change it in the moment. For me, I had a couple menus in place for Grace when we opened it, so it was an easy transition because I knew how crazy and hectic it was gonna be. And forever we'll do the same thing. We'll have the spring menu laid out, the one that we'll currently be serving, and then we'll also, we'll immediately start working on the summer menu. So when that transition happens, it becomes less stressful and just easy for us. So it's winter now, you've got your bride over there, We've got winter vegetables. What are you excited about cooking at home for your family? What are they like? Well, the kids are the hardest part, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how do you feed kids so that they'll like vegetables? Well, we end up cooking four different meals, wow. which is one wants a grilled cheese, the other one wants pasta, the other one wants chicken fingers, and one of them is still struggling on what to eat, like I was as a child. <laughs> so you don't say, no, 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 we're not going to do chicken fin fingers. It's, and well, I'll tell you a, a quick story. Uh, my youngest, her name is Eden. Uh, I decided one day, I was like, all right, we've got to get rid of these chicken fingers that we just buy at the store. They're processed. It's just yeah. garbage, right? We, know, we all know that. But we all love them, too. <laughs> Occasionally. And certainly my daughters do. So I had this idea that I'm a chef. I can cook. Well, let's make chicken fingers. So I got them involved, cracking the eggs and taking the chicken and pounding it and doing all this fun stuff. And I tried to make it as fun as possible. We sit down, get ready, they take a first bite. I'm enjoying it. Eden, how's the chicken fingers? And you know what she says to me? Dad, I think they taste rotten. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's one of those moments just like, they're so used to that processed flavor that something that is like freshly made is I don't like it. I'm like, God damn it. So, so do you have any tips on, on how we might break through to kids? Uh, I mean, for, my breakthrough was letting them get involved. Letting them crack the eggs and whisk them, and then they can put it in the pan and stir it, and then they'll eat scrambled eggs, right? But if I made it, they're like, nah, I don't want something else. Oh my gosh, do they know how lucky they huh? are? Bribe them. Yeah, bribe them. <laughs> With? Everything. Yeah. Everything. <laughs> you name it. Okay, but you guys eat grown-up food. So here's, some here's a good other one. Yeah. The other day, my, I had a bet with my, both of my daughters to do 50 push-ups in a row, and then they would try a piece of mango. Okay, wait, they had to do the push-ups I had to you? do the push-ups. Oh, yeah. And if I got 50 in a row, they would have to try the mango. And my, old, my other one was trying a cucumber. And what happened? I won. <laughs> they tried it. <laughs> I'm like, don't bet me that. <laughs> they should have said 100. Yeah. Um, but no, that's great that they're eating the mango and the cucumber. They try it. I mean, I, the only thing I want them to do is just try it. Yeah. How can you say you don't like something if you don't eat it? Exactly. But I remember as a kid, I, didn't, I would sit there for hours. Yeah, so it's probably hard to say to them, come on, you got to eat this food if, if you also kind of boycotted the food. Yeah. I know. Curtis has a knack for it, though. I mean, my favorite moments most of the time in grabbing people and taking them back to the kitchen after their experience is when someone has a dish based on something that they never enjoyed as a kid. So, like, he has, you know, especially in the vegetable realm as kids, you know what I mean? Beets 
tend to be one of those can beats yeah. moments. Most people keys, get turned green off. Keys. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. They get turned off by that at a very young age. Then they come in and they taste Curtis's version of whatever that is. And they'll only say that to him in the kitchen. You made beets. I ate beets. I loved beets tonight. Like, you did that for me. And they hug him and stuff. Like, you know, I had something tonight that I've always hated my whole life. And you gave it to me in a way that, like, I'm changed now. I'm going to eat beets again. I think that's the best. Question? That is such a compliment. The question is, can you tell the name of the logo designer? His name is Micah Stanley, and his partner's name is Christopher Lawton. Christopher Lawton and Micah Stanley designed Grace with us uh, back in the day. And uh, when it came time to do Ever, they're they're an architectural team. They're not graphic designers. And Micah looked over at us right at the beginning as soon as he heard the name, and he goes, I want to crack at it. I want to crack at it. And I was like, okay. Because logo design is the worst, right? It's like, oh my God, how are we gonna, how are we gonna find it? And uh, Micah kept sketching and sketching and sketching, and everyone was getting mad at me because once the Instagram account went live, I just kept posting all the sketches of ever again and again because we obsessed over it for like months and months and months. Every curve, every the way the E came around, Curtis kept messing with it. We thought we had one, he didn't like it. We go back to the drawing board on it. Oh, it was the worst. And so the boys did it. Christopher and Micah, who are architects, designers. They're also James Beard Award winners because they won for Grace. Uh, for the design of Grace Restaurant, they won a James Beard Award. Um, so I would love to see them get back up on that stage for this one because yeah. architecturally speaking and acoustically and the way it works and lives, it's an art piece. I'm so proud of it. Where can people see it? The restaurant? The, the website will have the logo. Um, that is correct. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's I'm supposed to what say this a lot. What is the website? Can you tell us? Yeah, I should actually tell you. It's ever-restaurant.com uh, is the website. Yeah, exactly. And it's on your, your paper there. Okay. And, uh, yeah, we try and I try and showcase it as much as possible. Am I wearing a shirt? Mm-hmm. No, I'm not. Sorry. Okay. Fail. Scott, I uh, forgot It's ever-restaurant.com is the website. And you can go to that website, and you can toss in your email, and that will alert you prior to reservations opening up. Um, you know, yeah. Are you, are you, so when do you think you'll start taking reservations? Construction is a moving target. Right. So, you know, it just depends on how that goes. Right now we say spring 2020, um, and we'll know as we get closer. We will probably open up the books for reservations, I would say four to six weeks prior to the doors opening, but it's hard to say six weeks out from the doors opening, the doors are gonna be open on that day guaranteed. The way the city works, the liquor license is the last thing to walk in the door. And you can't do nothing without that. So you really gotta watch your- You could do BYO. Yeah, you could do BYO. Telling that that to the wine manager. Super hurt my feelings, but yeah, we could. (laughs) You could bring my Pabst Blue Ribbon. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, 1330 West Fulton. So we went to the West Loop. We found a space, but we went is we're really right next to Ogden, where it used to be considered no man's land, and kaboom, not anymore. Now there's things going up all around us. Okay, we've got another question, Gail. So social media. Yeah. So how do you use social media but not let it interfere with your restaurant? You've just you've you've done a really good job at like there's an argument between us all the time, right? Where Curtis is like the guardian of too much, not too much. Don't post too much. Don't show too much. That's good. He's doing his job because I'm too much. 
Oh, a hundred percent. It is a thousand. Every photograph you see is taken by me, and every post you see, I send. I I, I press the send button on it, and uh, that's never going to change. Because honestly, I, I truly believe this. If it doesn't come from the source code, then it reads as fake and phony, and people tune out of it. And it's really why even do it. So it's our social media. It's our pictures. You know, it's something we developed as a friendship and as a partnership from our days at the peninsula where he was making so, all, so much of the food that he makes, it goes away so fast because it's ingredient driven. And when the ingredients go, the dish goes. And we don't do that many covers a night. We see like 40, 50 people. So this amazing piece of food can come out of the kitchen and it'd be the most beautiful, most intricate, most delicious thing you've ever had. And if I don't shoot it, if I don't take a picture of it, and if I don't share it, then no one will know it ever existed. And that's just such a shame. So way back in the day, I bought a camera and started the awful process of learning how to work it. And now I feel like I got a little bit of leg under me on it. And so yes, as he puts out these ideas, these beautiful little food artifacts, then we shoot them, we catalog them, we find an image that we both agree is, is proper, and we show it to the world via social media. Um, yes? Um, well, you were talking about social media and how do you feel about your guests where a lot of things uh, go crazy. Uh, because I had a millennial staying with me this summer, and I, he was into the knit world, and I mean, the, he was talking about this shop, that shop, yo, what do they say? Oh, she's a bitch, oh. And I was like, oh my gosh, you even, you're from Iowa, you haven't even met these <laughs> So like, the control, you know, a lot of things are out of your hands that aren't controlled. So, how do you feel about your guests photographing their dining experience and all of that? How do you, you know, is that, I mean, with 33 foot concrete walls, you might be able to completely suppress that, but I just thought I'd ask that question. So how do you feel about your guests using social media? I mean, how do you feel on the food front? I mean, it's gonna happen, like, I don't wanna be the restaurant that says you can't take pictures of the food. But it, it's going to happen, so we allow it. Unfortunately, the pictures that they usually post are not the greatest pictures. So we, it, I do have to look at it and go, oh my god, that's the worst picture ever. Uh, so we have, to, we have to suck it up and let it happen, really, unfortunately. When we, remember when we were at the peninsula, before Instagram became, before Instagram was Instagram, there was only Facebook, way back in the day. And posting pictures and, and taking pictures of the food in a restaurant was a very new thing. We got so uppity about it. We didn't want to punish them, so we would give the clients, we would offer the clients zip drives with high-res photos of the menu that they were having that evening. That was like nine years ago we were doing that. Yeah. Because all we were saying was, just don't post your shitty photos of our food. <laughs> Let us give you something beautiful. Feel free to post that. But you know what? It doesn't work. It doesn't work because they didn't take it because when they take it, it's them, it's their DNA on the, on the artifact. And, and so in that sense, I would say to you, all the way with them sharing it and taking it, yeah. I'm excited for people to videotape their walk down our cave walls and like, you know, walk into the dining room. Like those, that's them sharing that experience. Other people will see it and hopefully go, I have to have that experience too. That's, that's the hope of it. But the evils of social media are never ending. And you know, it's a very dangerous forest to navigate. I thought I saw a hand back there, Nicole. Well, as someone who was one of those original people taking pictures of food and people 
<laughs> they were like, why are you doing that? And people would just thought it was crazy. And then to see how it's come from those early days, it's pretty totally. amazing. But one of the best things I ever had here in Chicago, I got a, I won two, two different years in a silent auction, going out with a food critic, and two different ones. And um, Don Rose was one of them. And he would say, it's not about the food, it's about the experience. Because you know, many times, if you really like good food, you probably are a really good cook. So if you can't eat, the, if you are going and you get um, mediocre service, the food's okay, if you don't have a whole experience, that's what's going after a restaurant is. I mean, it's not necessarily the breakfast, you know, but it's definitely, if you're going to spend a lot of money, you want to have a total experience so that your staff gave the champagne off the house. That's, that's what you might expect. It's never the things that you think they are. It's always the littlest things in the whole wide world. It's, it's, a, it's a back waiter walking through the dining room with open ears, listening to the conversations as he cruises through the room, and hears one client say to another one, this is the best pretzel bread I've ever had in my life. Then that back waiter does not do nothing with that information. They then walk into pastry. They tell them, I'll take a box of pretzel for 14 on final course. Then they walk it over to the host stand and they place that hot box of pretzel bread on the center console of their car. And then we, like those other chefs looking down over the deal, we watch through the front. And you can watch them get in their car and go, you know, that was a really excellent you gotta be kidding me. Best dinner of our lives! Because we hooked him up with a, a hot box of pretzel bread and some awesome gooey butter in there for him to have. Because we listened. Because we listened. Because there was a teammate in the dining room caring a lot and wanting to hear what was happening in the dining room. And so they were aware of it. And then they didn't not do anything with it. They went to pastry with it. And what did they do? They wasted a dollar twenty-five. Who cares at that? You know what I mean? Like, and it goes with champagne, and it goes with a bottle of Riesling. They love it. They love it. They won't stop talking about it. Give them the bottle of Riesling on the way out. Give them another one. It's not gonna break the house. You know, we challenge them all the time. Give a chair away. See if I get upset about it. <laughs> Chef, did you want to talk about the complete experience before we wrap? No, that's good. All right. So, Chef Curtis. Duffy and Michael Mieser, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you.